you're, you're ready to handle any eventuality, anything that happens, you know, that one time you get caught on one leg and, and, uh, and you got to look over your shoulder and your knee goes into valgus, you don't tear your ACL, you know, and sometimes it happens. Sometimes shit happens, you know, you got to accept that, but, but no, I, I mean, that's, yeah, now it's become, it's become a buzzword, which is fine. That's fine. But that doesn't mean I won't use it because, because we know what robust and resilient means and you're going to bounce back. You know, uh, I mean, for example, now in swimming, you got to swim fast in the morning, you got to swim fast at night and you got to swim when you come to Olympic trials, our best girl is going to swim five events. So that's 10 swims minimum over four days, you know, and uh, so you better be robust. Because uh, if you, you swim fast in the morning and you make the final and you're eighth in the final, you're watching the Olympics on TV next to me. Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 45 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Vern Gambetta. Vern has had over five decades within the world of athletic development, and on today's podcast, we spoke about the seductiveness of strength training and how to know if you're doing too much, uh, building a robust athlete from a psychological perspective, from avoiding over-specialization, and Vern's take on work capacity, and finally, we spoke about Vern's approach when it comes to pedagogy. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you again in the next episode. How are you doing today, Vern? Doing well. Thank you for um, having me on. I'm looking forward to this, so it should be fun. My absolute pleasure. Um, I'll start things off the same way I start off uh, every podcast, and that is uh, inspired by Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. But uh, why do you do what you do, Vern? Wow. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if 50 some years ago, I might have been able to articulate it. I don't know if I can articulate it well right now. I, I, I think it's more um, the joy and the, and, and the um, experience of um, helping people. What do, you, what do you do? I mean, what, what do you do when you're a coach, when you're a teacher? You're, you're helping people. And um, that's what it comes down to. It's, you know, in, in this case where they're able to, exp- to be able to express themselves, you know, in this case through their athletic skills as a classroom teacher you know, have deeper and better knowledge than when I was teaching history or, or that. So yeah, to help people. Sounds, sounds pretty um, uh, uh, idealistic, but that's me. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And uh, if I remember rightly, and I hope I'm not confusing you with someone else, but you're perhaps not the biggest fan of the word philosophy when it comes to coaching and training athletes. Um, but if you have any sort of key principles or whatever well no i i am a i think you got me mixed up with somebody else i am a big fan i mean philosophy is the underpinning and 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 that that without without solid core beliefs and and i learned this in a in a in in california where i grew up and went to uh, where all my education is was is uh i had a you go after graduate you go a fifth year for your teaching credential your teaching certificate and i had a professor then and he said you know by the time we get done with this class which was a semester-length class and by the time you're coaching for a year 
if you don't have your philosophy and your core beliefs well-defined, you're going to be like a ship without a rudder. So, no, philosophy is really important. And, my, you know, my core, core philosophy is, is that, uh, you know, that we're, we're going to get better every day. Uh, and uh, uh, it's as simple as that. You know, we're going to do all the things we have to do to get better every day. And the pursuit of excellence has its own reward. So it's not about one wins and losses. Those will come if you do a good job and you have certain things. But yeah, uh, so you know that's all it is. It's it's pretty simple and straightforward. And and uh, but from that derives a lot of things. And then in terms of actual training, over the course of uh, you know my first years coaching, um, I I my own my I was driven to articulate certain principles, guiding principles based on. Uh, physiology, biomechanics, psychology, those, you know, all of those things, and, 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 and pedagogy, science of teaching, you know, to articulate uh, a framework as to how you were going to prepare an athlete for competition and recognize that uh, when I started, there was no strength and conditioning. I never had in vaguest notion that I would be labeled a strength and conditioning coach. I don't accept that label. Um, uh, I started out as a um, sport coach, as a track and field athletics coach. And uh, my specialty was um, combined events. So everything. And, uh, you know, uh, and then because the mother of all sports is athletics uh, and other coaches started to see, well, you know, your kids aren't injured, your kids jump really well, but bup, 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 when they went to another sport, they started asking, well, what do you do? What kind of strength training do you do? What do you, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it, it gradually led toward what eventually it has been labeled um, strength and conditioning for me. Yeah. And there's long there's answer. A, for, uh, sorry, but no, uh, no, I love it. This is uh, give me a couple of things I want to talk about. I'll, I'll dive back into your track and field background in a second. Um, but something that I've read in different forums, it'll talk about, for example, has somebody got 20 years experience or simply repeated the same year 20 times? Um, as a coach with your wealth of experience, what are, do you have any, I suppose, precise ways of reflecting on sessions or do you keep a journal or what does that process look like for you? Um, yeah, I keep a journal. I mean, I have years of, of, Notebooks like this, usually this size, Moleskine, uh, uh, um, well, now Moleskine notebooks before that, of just thoughts, ideas that I gather a crew and I still write them down, regardless of whether I see them on the internet or that. There's a neurophysiological reason, I think, for writing things down to help remember them and, and articulate your thoughts better. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, every day's. Uh, uh, training is testing and testing is training and uh, you evaluate every session you uh, if you're like this morning you asked me what I did I we had a uh, six o'clock dry land session we're you know just at the beginning of a taper for some pretty 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 big meets for the kids in swimming and uh, uh, I didn't do a formal taper with the swim coaches it was more kind of informal um, as we were walking out to the pool and the kids were getting their stuff ready and that just a couple of thoughts, guys, what'd you see? And we're always talking during the workout. 
and then uh, and then I went for a walk and an hour walk and probably 20 minutes of it was reflecting on um, what the workout was today, what the week was, because we're done with this microcycle and how that's going to fit into next week. And that's just an ongoing process. I think that's what that's what you have to do. And you, you, you know, I'm at a different place in my career now. I've never worked with this small a group uh, exclusively, you know, and uh, well, the last maybe 10 years, I, I worked with a couple of professional beach volleyball players and now just, and now the swim team. And there's, there's 30, there's 30 athletes here. The beach volleyball players was only two, but, you know, I'm so used to working with larger numbers, you know, uh, all, almost all the events and track and that it's, it's kind of a luxury. So I, I, I think sometimes what I have to be careful of is paralysis by analysis that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I don't over evaluate, you know, and take each session out of context. I have to, that's why we, we looked at today's session and, and within today's session, we had a lot of moving parts because we have uh, an athlete that has a swimmer who has a important meet next week. And then, you know, that, so, we all did the same movements, but different set and rep schemes, you know, so that it just keeps your mental acuity up. <laughs> and is there anything, I mean, something I've got jotted down. Um, I'm a bit annoyed at myself that I didn't write it out uh, in full. Um, but just as you were talking about the paralysis by analysis, uh, I remember watching one of your webinars um, and there's a thing called the centipede poem. Uh, I think it's, oh, talk, yeah. it talks about hyper reflection and, uh, I would try and read the poem from memory, but I'll uh, I'll end up butchering it. But do you have anything to stop that paralysis by analysis? Yeah, I mean, it, it, and 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 I think everybody goes through those stages in your career where you feel like you have to coach where the big toe is, and now make sure the knees at this. I've I've actually heard this recently. You make sure your knees at this angle, and and by the way, look this way over your shoulder, and the athletes go ah, you know, they just. They have no idea what the hell you're talking about and what to do. And um, so you, you learn, you, you have to teach the movements. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's be upfront. There's a lot of this, there's a lot of movements now through, you know, ecological learning that just say, oh, you give them the task and let them solve the problem. Yes, to a certain extent, but I want to make sure that they understand the fundamentals, but I'm going to do that with less verbal instruction and more um, mimicking and mirroring and using video and things like that. And, uh, and I don't wanna fit the athlete in a box. I mean, we, we, do, we do some sort of lunging every day. And uh, I, I watch how they lunge and I recognize that I, today I had a six foot five, 21 year old collegiate international distance swimmer right next to a five foot, um, 110 pound girl. And the lunges look a little different. You know, one's got really, really long legs. One's got really uh, long torso, you know, so you, you learn to, to fit the, uh, the movement and the exercise to the athlete rather than trying to make uh, the athlete fit the movement and recognize that there's no perfect technique. You know that 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 they then you allow them to express themselves, express themselves through the movement, and uh, you know unless something just jumps out, you know, like it's really stupid, you're going to get hurt, and I would never do that. But does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and that's been a recurring theme in um, previous podcasts where I've spoken to 
coaches and they've spoken about challenging what would be seen as uh, traditional technique or the right and the wrong way. And the main theme is that actually there's no singular right way. It's just right. Here's the bandwidth and it's just acceptable, not acceptable. And actually what is the movement outcome we're trying to achieve? Um, in terms of, you mentioned paralysis uh, by analysis uh, for yourself reflecting as a coach. Um, do you ever have to focus athletes on um, specific things? So for example, I know Dan John talks about um, not being so obsessed with the minutiae of, I don't know, we're lifting 83.25% for six reps, oh, yeah. seven RPE. Do you have any tips for getting athletes to be able to focus on what's important? Yeah, I mean, and, and this goes back to really getting to know the athletes. So, um, uh, Sarah, I'll get, just that's her first name. Uh, when she when she squat today, we were just mainly body weight squat, fast body weight, not mainly, but one movement. And uh, we she's worked really hard. This kid has worked really hard, really improved. But when she when we speed it up, as she as she goes in the uh, down phase of the squat. She tends to lose and it's, it lose concentration more, and her knees go into valgus a little bit. And so we've just developed like a little cue system. Like sometimes I just walk by and I just tap the inside of her knee, and she, oh yeah, you know, because she's thinking about just just solely concentrating on being fast and not thinking about what she had to do after she got down, you know, and, and get, getting back up. So uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but it's, it's, it's gotta be simple. It's gotta be, I mean, I've, I've, I've used false cues. I had a world-class decathlete and uh, he, um, he was an okay hurdler. That wasn't his best event. Not, not as flexible as he needed to be he played American football and had some, had some um, niggles that we just couldn't get rid of. And I'd stand between the fifth and the sixth hurdle and I'd yelled jump and this one coach said I thought you knew what you were talking about and I do I said I know my athletes you don't jump the hurdle but if I didn't say jump Scott would literally just run he was a big guy would run through the hurdle you know for some reason he would set you know and that so you know you, you work out what you have to do to get your athlete um, you know to the finish line in, in an optimum position. And, and I, I want to emphasize, let, let's go back that we make sure that, you know, each athlete has a technical model, a good, clear idea, the technical model of what they're trying to achieve um, in their, it can be in their sport. And it also can be in that exercise. I mean, squatting, we do, uh, we do what we call a squat routine. It's seven as, as a warm up for our total body and legs day when we do that. And, and there's also a lunge routine and it's, it's seven different types of squats, narrow stance, wide stance, you know, all kinds of things like that. So they're conversant with the idea of proportionally bending ankle, knee, hip from all kinds of different uh, positions with their upper body in that. Cause that's what you're gonna run into uh, and, 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 and that's driven by this concept that uh, great athletes can, can make the sh necessary shapes and change shapes rapidly without any conscious thought. And so that's part of the robustness is getting them to be able to, uh, and, and squatting is as fundamental a movement as you're going to have. 
you know, if you can't bend, the biggest thing that I see today is a lot of youngsters that come in, they're so tight from sitting and so tight from wearing high heel shoes that they can't squat with their heels flat. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's a process. It's, it's a four or five month process to get them where they can break parallel and, you know, and, and, and use the, 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 this ankle knee hip relationship, you know. So. And I know as uh, strength and conditioning coaches, maybe sometimes we're obsessed too much over exact progressions and regressions. Um, but with your guys, you just mentioned in the seven different types of squats, how does um, how do you build into that, if that makes sense? So, for example, I'm sure that on the first day you might not chuck all of that at them. Um, but yeah, how does no. how do you build up to well, that? Yeah, you know, I mean, you just take a, a basic squatting movement, you know, and and that's all you do, and with support, something like that. And I mean, these are real simple. You know, three or four of them you can do on day one. You do on day one, you know, you hold your hands overhead, your arms are here, your arms are right, your arms are left, things like that. So, it, it, you know, you, you try to make it as simple as possible. And we tell them the objective is the biggest thing I want you to do, and then I'll bring somebody up or I'll demonstrate, I can still demonstrate enough. And I'll show them from the front, the side and the back. And I'm gonna say, this is how it should look. Let's try that, look at your partner, look at what they're doing, okay. What do we have to adjust? If you can't squat with your heels flat, then what we'll do is we widen the stance first, okay? Until you can. If you tend to go into valgus with your knees, what do you, you know, how do we do that? How do we cue that, you know? And uh, yeah, so, you, you know, you have a pretty defined progression with branches off of that. And then you always have a, a colleague of mine, Steve Merlin calls it dial up or dial down. Dial up is the progression and dial down is the regression. So if you get to step four and they could do one, two, three, they get to step four and they can't, you know, they really struggle with step four. You go back to step three and then you, and then you reevaluate. And you mentioned there about your uh, swimmers just doing bodyweight squats as an example. Uh, if we shift gears into strength training, then um, you've probably got one of my favorite definitions of strength training that I think also acts to uh, break down the notion that strength training is just barbells or is just dumbbells. Um, how do you define strength training? Well, coordination training with appropriate resistance to um, produce force, reduce force. Um, uh, geez, I can't remember the other part. <laughs> uh, move, move an object. So, it, you know, if you're a prop in rugby or whatever, American lineman. Um, and what's what's the other one produce yeah i mean that's basically it you 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 get the idea the key thing is coordination training with appropriate resistance not maximal resistance what's appropriate for uh for a uh, distance swimmer like this this six foot four kid is uh maybe not at, uh well as appropriate as would be for a sprint swimmer in this case and my rule of thumb that's a corollary to that definition is we will never sacrifice range of motion or speed of movement for resistance. Say it again, we'll never sacrifice speed of movement or range of motion for resistance. Um, because if you do that, then the, the end uh, 
here, I'm going to give you the right definition. Now that bugs me. I don't know why I had a brain cramp. Coordination training with appropriate resistance to handle body weight first, reject an implement, and that can be as light as a golf ball or whatever, strike an implement, um, move or resist movement of another body, resist gravity, and optimize ground reaction forces. And as far as I know, that covers every everything that we do in sport and in life on this planet anyway. You know, so, and then the, as I said, the corollary is, we're, you know, we're going to, now we, we start with percentage of body weight and I would do the same thing. I, I have a lot of colleagues in rugby and American football and they start with percentage of body weight and some of them end up uh, lifting really, really heavy because that's appropriate for their sport and where they play on the pitch, you know, so that's important. Sorry for the brain cramp. No, it's all right. I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to jump in and correct you and uh, steal your. Oh no, you did. I'm. I'm not beyond complex, complex, com correction. Believe. Me. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try and try and remember. Try and remember where I was with that. Yeah, the reason why oh, I like sorry. it is because um, I put a post on my social media a few months ago, and it was about that definition of strength training, and it was aimed at parents who are perhaps anti kids getting strong or assume that strength yeah. equals bodybuilding or something ridiculous like that. Right, right, but I right. said, would you be okay if we develop their ability to handle body weight? Would you be okay if we developed their yeah. ability to project an implement? So I don't know, a shot put javelin, whatever. And the idea is you go through the list and they probably say, yes, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and then you get to the, I don't know, barbells. So once you've exhausted all those coordination style progressions and then it's like oh no i don't like that it's like well you're okay for them to be i don't know tackled by a kid who's an early yeah. maturer who's six foot four and biologically <laughs> 18 but you're not happy with uh, the resistance of a i don't know a goblet squat or whatever yeah 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 for sure and you mentioned about one of the things you've mentioned about in previous podcasts is the seductiveness of strength training um, do you want to elaborate a little bit on? Uh, well, yeah, no question. And look, I'm 74 years old, but I can remember it like yesterday uh, when I started weight training. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, let's see, 62. I was 16 years old, 16 and a half years old. You know, and you're secreting testosterone, more testosterone in a day than Lance Armstrong took in a month, you know, and yeah, 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 you take advantage of that. And my God, you know, for that first phase, right, that first six, eight weeks, you, you, you just can't help but look every day you're getting stronger, right? And you look in the mirror and all of a sudden you see, you, you know, you, you look different, you look better, you know, and, and you get caught in that. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's easy to lock yourself in the weight room and chase numbers because it's achievable. Uh, and, and, uh, and so that's why I say the seductiveness of it in that, you know, it's, it's like um, you're always coming to crossroads in terms of developing the athlete. And you come to this particular crossroad and the right crossroad is let's go, let's go spend more time in the weight room. Let's get heavier. Left crossroad says, okay, now we've got to do some more, uh, we've got to get away from that general strength. We've got to do some more special or specific strength. We've got to do more sport appropriate movements. Well, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot easier to go to the right 
and, and see numbers go up quicker than it is to do go down the left-hand path, which is less measurable and takes longer. And that's what, you know, so that's where the seductiveness of it is, so. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying there as well, because uh, I think of the analogy of, I don't know, getting to the top of the ladder and then realizing it was against the wrong wall and think that in theory, <laughs> if you had a youth athlete do everything that you asked them to do from a strength perspective, you could get them to this, I don't know, mythical, and I'm doing the little air quotations, mythical two yeah. times body weight back squat or whatever. Sure. You could sure. probably get them there with about, I don't know, making this up now, but three to five years of training. But then you're like, oh, actually, are there other qualities that we needed to develop? And we got them strong enough or appropriately strong. But actually, I yeah. don't know, they've missed out this part of their athletic development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's, um, you know, I, I've never been in 50, 50 uh, three years of coaching. I've never had unlimited time to, to uh, uh, to train an athlete, you know, in, in, in athletics, a lot of times it was just because we had the technical component, you know, but in, in professional sports, uh, the time was, you'd think there'd be more, but the, it was less. So you have to really prioritize what were you doing relative to the athlete's stage of development re relative to where they were, you know, in terms of their uh, actual technical capabilities in the sport and that, you know, so uh, it's really important to, uh, you know, to consider that. That being said, I, I worked with a, a national caliber uh, girls volleyball team here in Venice, Florida, just south of us, and um, worked with them for four years. And at the end of the third year, by the end of the third year, every kid on the, not every kid, the top group could squat, um, you know, one and a half times body weight for three reps, you know, in a good, good parallel. I wouldn't say full squat wasn't necessary, you know, in that. Was that an upfront objective? Did it make them better? Let's say, say first, did it make them better? It didn't make them better directly because we achieved everything we wanted with the percentage of body weight and all the different progressions. But you know what it did? It was a tremendous boost to their confidence. You know, they, they just, when they achieved that, they just, you know, there was nothing that was gonna stop them. You know, and uh, and we didn't go, we didn't try, we, we didn't try to go any farther than that. You know, we went to different um, um, uh, spectrum squats, different things like that. You know, where they'd earn the right to do. And just going back to you, uh, a point you made previously, um, you said they never sacrifice uh, range of motion or speed of movement. Um, what's your thoughts on? And I know you love to critique research articles. Um, what's your thoughts on, for example, the research that says you can do, for example, a heavy quarter squat and that might transfer more to, I don't know, jumping or sprinting because of the joint angles involved? Well, I mean, it, it does to a certain extent, but how much transfer relative, how much transfer relative to the, um, to the time you have to invest? I mean, look, 50, some 50, six years ago, 57 years ago, when I was playing college football, I was doing score quarter at 195 pounds. What's that? Uh, 90 kilos, a little over 90 kilos. I was doing quarter squats with, you know, 600 pounds, almost, you know, was it worth it? No. I mean, uh, the, 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 you know, and, and I, I know what the research says and those research studies are, are, 
are correct in a narrow range of what they're looking at in the population they're looking at. But you don't have to do that. You're, you're going to get better return by jumping. <laughs> you know, and jumping with a percentage of body weight and making sure you don't slow it down so much. Now, I understand that your brain still tries to recruit at maximum speed. I get that. But but there's still I'm getting what I call gaposis, that gap between where you are there and what you have to express on the volleyball court or on the on the pitch or something, you know. So I think and that also leads, I wonder if you're gonna give a similar answer. Um, because I've heard you talk about it before, but there's definitely a research bias towards, for example, stuff like Nordics in terms of the amount of papers that has been produced, um, proclaiming them to, I suppose, be the panacea of uh, reducing hamstring injuries. But what is your thoughts on the, on the Nordic? Well, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very outspoken and uh, nobody yet has proven to me, first of all, the original study that every that started the whole thing. And this is where you have to really, really um, know your stuff, have an open mind, be willing to ask questions. The original study in my book was flawed. Okay. They, 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 you know, the other group did normal, the first one group did Nordic hamstring curls twice a week, or maybe even, I don't remember now, I should know twice, say twice a week. And the, and the other group did, there was no control group and the other did normal soccer training. Well, what's normal soccer training? You know, I mean, you have to define and you have to define what you do. And then it, it took off. And, uh, and I, I, in 1975, we experimented with, uh, with what, what now is called the Nordic hamstring. And, and for a while it was called the Russian hamstring movement. We, we, we did it out in Santa Barbara, a bunch of us decathletes. And within three, three weeks, uh, the four of the people that did them had hamstring pulls. And one guy had an avulsion uh, and was out for the year. And, uh, and I just go, I'm not in the extreme soreness you get. So that, that made me wary. So when I saw that starting to happen, obviously you're limited by your experience. And I had a bias against it. But I go, okay, let's look at the, let's, let's look at the literature. Let's look at it. And if you, if you really delve into the literature, look at the studies. Uh, first of all, it puts tremendous strain on the um, uh, distal attachment of the hamstrings. Remember, there's more than one hamstring muscle. And, uh, you know, and it doesn't, and then now people are said, well, we've got to target short head or long head or the bicep femoris. So what do we have to do? The body doesn't work that way. The body does not it, it, it does not look at individual muscles. It looks at muscle synergy. It, and that's how it works. So you're trying to isolate a muscle. It's just like a leg curl, except you're accentuating the eccentric. So they're saying, well, it's eccentric strength. It's not eccentric strength either. If you really look at all the go outside the Nordic hamstring research, and you look at all the studies done, biomechanical studies both kinetic and kinematic studies done on sprinting, we know that yes, the hamstring works eccentrically to help decelerate the foreleg, but there's also an instantaneous isometric action there that, 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 that occurs. And, um, and there's a period of quiet when the hamstring isn't completely active. Now I'm, I'm generalizing because I'm not talking about semi-membranosis versus tendinosis versus bicep femoris. But so, you know, and then, and then the third one is I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, sharpest tool in the shed. 
But when somebody tells me that an exercise is going to reduce injuries and significantly reduce injuries, and then I look at statistics, and, and I'll use um, Australian Rules Football as an example, who publishes their publicly publishes their in, has published been publishing their injury statistics for the last um, 12, uh, let's say 10, but I think it's 12 years. And every, and, and that's where the origin of the Nordic hamstring, even though it was invented in, you know, supposedly in, in um, Oslo or something, but they really embraced it. And that's the home of the Nord board and all of that. And they test their hamstring injuries have not, have not reduced. In fact, they even they haven't flatlined every year they go up. Well, wouldn't that force you? I mean, as a coach, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the hard question. I'm doing all, I'm investing time to prevent hamstring injuries by doing this particular exercise and my hamstring injuries aren't declining. I rest my case, you know? So what do you do for hamstrings? First of all, I don't train the hamstrings. We train the hamstrings as part of movements. Okay. As movements. Okay. We'll do lunges in all three planes. We'll do single leg squats. We do step ups. And now they've discovered, the same group has discovered that high speed running, which I don't know what high speed running is, either you sprint or you run, but sprinting inoculates you against hamstring pulls. Hello, I could have told you that even when I was you know, 50 years ago before I had very much experience. So what, what you know, why, you know, and yet everybody has to, you know, you go through, you're, you're in England, go through the majority of your rugby teams there, your, your soccer teams. You said you worked at English Institute. They, everybody tests now on the Nord board because it generates these nice, cute numbers. And then what, what do you do with the numbers? Train on the Nord board. So you get stronger on the Nord board, but you still have hamstring injuries. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty passionate about it and I'm waiting for somebody to prove me wrong. And so far they, you know, I was told by Engage, the scientist at, in Norway and, and the guys in Australia, and they said, well, you're just a coach. Well, that's fine. I have to produce. You produce papers. I have to produce results. Very Rest nice. my case. Very nice. And it's funny because just, just hearing you talk, I'm reminded of um, a coach I worked under at GB Boxing, and he used to work in, um, he used to work in rugby. And he said one of the players came to him one time and said, uh, we've been doing all these sprints and I'm not getting any faster. What's the point? And he said, well, the point is we need to expose you to this level of hamstring stress because this, it, at some point it becomes more about injury reduction as well as a performance quality. I also think there's a danger of, and I've been guilty of this at times, uh, especially when you read books about like triphasic training and stuff like that, you can become so pigeonholed or you, you dive into the rabbit hole and you know oh they're not strong enough oh what type of strength oh it's eccentric strength oh well we need to and then you come so far removed from performance that you wonder whether this isolated quality really is giving you what you think it is and triphasic strength is it's a great marketing term uh but within just as as i move my arm here the listeners can't hear move my arm, I have an isometric, isotonic, and, 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 uh, and um, eccentric contraction. And sometimes I have a different, at, at the origin or the insertion of the muscle, I have different, different action. So how can you is, isolate that out? You know, now we will do what I call, uh, and I learned this from a, 
French biomechanist. Uh, uh, Gilles Comité has passed away at a conference in 1987. It's what it's all the stuff that Werner Gunther did that people like to call French contrast training. And it's, you know, you do uh, an isometric squat for X amount of time, then you do a, a, a loaded squat, and then maybe you do a jump squat. And it has a, it has a, uh, uh, there's a particular phase of training that we'll do it in. I know what the results are in my system. Different, different of my colleagues use it at different um, places. It's, you know, it's really effective, but that's not triphasic. That's just taking advantage of certain muscle actions to, um, to accentuate qualities you want to bring out. And uh, if we talk about, if we go on to the movements, not muscles, um, topic a little bit more it's funny because i had this thought a while ago about how some coaches might say that but then for example they use nordics they use side planks and you're like well hang on a minute you're using that argument but you're including these exercises yeah. um so i want to talk about your thoughts on their uh, core training and I, I know you don't like the term um but you, do you want to just talk about how you go about training i suppose everything between the knees and the neck uh, train everything from toenails to fingernails, so not the knees and the neck, and all training is core training. Uh, you know, last time I checked, we've evolved from a lower species. We don't drag our knuckles on the ground. We, we, we walk upright and bipedal, and it's bipedal, and if you look at it, uh, if you look at walking or running from in front, you see, um, you know, one leg go in front of the other, and, and you'll see one shoulder counteract the movement of the hips, uh, maybe by going, for, you know, just the opposite. And uh, so uh, I don't particularly like the term core training. Uh, it's, I, I'll accept it until we can come up with something better. I like to call it, I, and we actually do call it postural strength, because what we're interested in is, is these postures and poses, uh, uh, shapes, as we say, that we have to make in, in various sports. And movement uh, occurs through the center of the body, not from the center of the body. It's we starts on usually off the ground, or sometimes it's initiated um, from above in certain athletic movements and that kind of stuff. So we have to we have to learn how to attenuate forces that are generated off the ground or generated from the top down. And movement occurs in all three planes: frontal, sagittal, and transverse. So. We, our postural strength work, uh, even for swimming, um, I would say that 90% of our postural strength work is standing and moving with various, various types of implements and resistance and uh, even partner resistance. And only about 15% is done in prone and supine positions. Because if you take a, a and, and, you know, and that's it. And, and that being said, um, I mean, do, holding a plank and uh, for 10 seconds, whatever, is pointless. It, it's it's unless you're getting in a plank holding contest, uh, you know. And and I I would venture to say uh, I could total it up because we set it up all in modules. This this week, uh, the kids probably did no less than about 2,000 reps of uh, between 1,500 and 2,000 reps of postural strength work in different from different positions, you know, working on decelerating the core, the trunk, sorry, the trunk, um, accelerating, extension, flexion, lateral flexion, all those kinds of movements, you know, so that 
so that that area that she said, I didn't mean to, I didn't want to sound like a put down, but between your shoulders and your knees, where the it's the it's the transmission of the car, so to speak. It's so strong and so robust that we can we can handle all these different um, uh, uh, postures that we have to we have to use. And you know, in, in swimming, it it's all relatively slow and controlled because of the water. But think about think about uh, rugby and think about soccer and think about American football, where if if you don't if you're not strong through the, you know, from shoulders to the knees, you're not going to be able to attenuate all those forces that you have to, you have to impart and you have to absorb. So do you have, do you ever have any, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, do you ever have any um, kickback from swimming coaches who are like, right, well, they're horizontal in the water. So why are they yeah. stood up on two feet? What's your counter to that? My counter is that don't work with them. <laughs> And we beat him. And we beat him. I mean, uh, I, uh, last Saturday we had a pretty big meet here, and uh, um, I just sat up in the stands and watched. And our kids walk out. The, obviously, the guys have the, the women have longer suits on, but you know, in practice they don't. And our kids, they're 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 so ripped, and we don't do any. You know, like trunk flexion is. I think we did how many reps of sit of some sort of sit up. I think about 30 reps last week and these kids are ripped and lean and fit and uh that's what you want and uh we carmel swim club who and carmel high school was a record for uh most state championships in a row there was just a clip on tv on uh, on twitter this morning state championship this morning they're in the they're in the gym next to the pool doing a um dumbbell complex and medicine ball um throws you know so go ahead you do your planks and we'll do our stuff and if we have our talent is equal we'll beat you so i i i I'm, i sound like a crotchety old man but i'm past the point that i feel like i have to convince people uh of something if they want to believe that go ahead waste your time if i've got a minute of training i want to make the athlete better not make them tired so and i and i i understand the research i've read all the research um there's a there's a meth, there's a methodology and a method behind what we do. Um, people call it fascial slings. There's a lot of different names. That's what we're talking about, you know. So uh, it's not it's not some off the wall madman um, sitting in a swamp in Florida chasing alligators, you know. So uh, <laughs> that's right. <where I'm> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and if we just um, diverge slightly into create uh, another buzzword in strength conditioning uh, is the word robust. Um, but if we talk a little bit about creating robust athletes, uh, yeah. do you have, I suppose, your own definition of what you view robustness as? Oh yeah, I love the I love the term robust. It was a robust and resilient R and R man. I mean, that's what it's all about. And robust means you can handle. Uh, you, you have a high level of trainability, so that you can handle the the, the, the load in practice. Used to, it, it's kind of trainability and work capacity overlap, right? That you can you can handle the, the the load as you progress through the system, and uh, and 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 therefore, when you get in the competitive situation, the competitive cauldron at Anson Dorrance, the women's soccer coach at uh, North Carolina, calls it. You're you're ready to handle any eventuality, anything that happens. 
you know, that one time you get caught on one leg and, and, uh, and you got to look over your shoulder and your knee goes into valgus, you don't tear your ACL, you know, and sometimes it happens. Sometimes shit happens, you know, you got to accept that, but, but no, I, I mean, that's, yeah, now it's become, it's become a buzzword, which is fine. That's fine. But I, I doesn't mean I won't use it because, because we know what robust and resilient means and you're going to bounce back, you know, uh, I mean, for example, now in swimming, you got to swim fast in the morning, you got to swim fast at night. And you got to swim when you come to Olympic trials, our best girl is going to swim five events. So that's 10 swims minimum over four days, you know, and uh, so you better be robust. Because uh, if you, you swim fast in the morning, and you make the final and you're eighth in the final, you're watching the Olympics on TV next to me. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned work capacity there, something I've got um, jotted down from, I think it's the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast, but you, it says that you like to think of work capacity as things that might limit an athlete's ability to do other things. Yep. Do you want to just speak on that for a minute or so? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and, and, and I haven't changed my thoughts on that. And that evolved over quite a few years, probably until, oh, I'd say the early 90s or mid 90s. So obviously various types of endurance, aerobic, anaerobic, um, you know, if I don't have that, well, and, and, and that's required in the sport, then I've got to build up that capacity. Certainly uh, flexibility or, or effective range of motion around the joint can be limiting. So that's work capacity. That limits my ability to do other work. Um, yeah, things like that. And so that's what, that's what I look at. So we're always going to address that um, on, a, on a systematic basis. Sometimes we address it as, uh, now I, there's been a, why I don't know, but I've noticed a, now all of a sudden microdosing is, is, is controversial. And I never liked the term because it conjures up images of the Oregon Project and drugs and things like that. I, I, I call them minis. I used to call them minis. You know, so if, if like, for example, if I'm really uh, deficient in um, some aspect of flexibility at a joint that's going to limit my performance, say, in, in fast bowling or something like that, well, then I'm going to design a mini routine for, for me or for, for you to do, um, you know, to improve that. And if, if it's, um, you know, if, if I'm constantly running out of gas in the last three minutes of the match, well, then I've got to start doing things to improve. And probably what I'm doing is I'm not able to, my work capacity isn't high enough that I can do enough in training yet to be able to address that. So that has to become an emphasis, right? Yeah, it's, it's like you hear from a lot of sports. I mean, my sport when I was growing up was boxing. Um, and a classic one is like, you don't uh, box to get fit. You need to be fit to box and saying that actually box. you need oh, yeah. you need that underlying, I mean, work capacity, I guess, to then make the most out of the technical side of things. Right, right. And that's what, that's what work capacity underlies trainability. And trainability is the things that have, a, in a sense, uh, higher quality movements, a higher degree of transfer, possibly, you know, to your sport. I mean, you know, you think about, I, I, I took a combatives class uh, my freshman year in college and I, we ended up having to bo box a, a three, uh, three one minute rounds, you know, 16 ounce gloves. Well, I only lasted 45 seconds before I got knocked out, knocked down. But we do, you know, just shadow box, just take, 
take a 16 and wear or something, you know, a pound, just put a pound in your hand and try to hold your hands up for three minutes, not even punch and not get hit, you know? And, and I mean, I have tremendous respect for the, for the degree of, you know, people look at boxing, some of the traditional boxing training and they go, that's really stupid. Well, some of it is a little over the top, but when you think about, I got to get ready, I'm going to get hit and I'm, you know, and, and I got to keep my hands up and I got to throw punches, man, it's, uh, it's, I'm not telling you, you know, <laughs> it, it, it makes me laugh. Cause just, just thinking about, for example, uh, punching with really light dumbbells, it's very easy. And I think we do this a lot in strength and conditioning where we put our strength and conditioning hat on and then look at something and call it stupid. But actually, for example, I've spoken to boxing coaches who were like, no, we're not using the dumbbells to get quicker. We're using that because the second you get tired and your hands drop, then it's drop. you're in trouble. You're done. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've been guilty of looking at other sports and being like, oh, that's stupid. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. Oh, this I guy's... have to. I have to. And, and I'm, I'm still stupid enough that I make comments about some things that I see at various times when I don't really know why they're doing. I've tried to rein that in a little bit more, uh, you know, until you, until you get to know the sport and understand, uh, and I, I'm willing to accept as long as it doesn't, uh, add stress to stress that, you know, there are certain things that are traditional in the sport and, and the, it, it's passed down from generation to generation, as long as that doesn't detract from what, making you better, you know, so baseball's like that, cricket's like that, you know, there are certain things that are, they're going to do, and they're going to do no matter what they, you know, how well you know that it's different, you know, so you try to build a wall around it. <laughs> exactly, and I think yeah. um, you were on Steve Ingham's podcast uh, a while ago, and I think it's in, I think it's in his, um, one of his books, where he says, if there's such a huge psychological attachment to something within that sport then even though your strength and conditioning research paper might say i don't know don't warm up with static stretching or i don't know yeah. whatever um but they've always done it before a big competition then taking that away can sometimes be more harmful than uh, the physical well yeah and, and talking to steve about that in his first in his first book was brilliant and it you know yeah so i understand that static stretching can can potentially have a negative effect on explosive power but, and, and foam rolling definitely does. But if it makes you feel good, then what I try to do, I had a conversation the other day with one of the athletes, asked me about, because we don't do foam rolling as a group. And, uh, and he asked me, because he saw one of a world-class swimmer on, you know, on the internet. And I said, yeah, you know, it makes you feel good, right? I said, fine, tonight for study breaks, go ahead and foam roll. It's not going to hurt him, but it doesn't help you. You know, and, and I, I'm, I'm jealous about time uh, I want to, I want to, if, if I have 20 minutes, I want to make you 20 minutes better, not 20 minutes tired. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, just, I want to tap into something you mentioned earlier. You um, talked about your minis and you spoke about your experience as a decathlete. Um, when you're training for multiple events and you don't have unlimited time, logistically, how do you go about, for example, training a decathlete? Well, it's, a, it's, it's constant compromise uh, and, and you have to accept that. that um, and and the, the, the beauty of the decathlon that's really cool is you have a scoring table and that guides everything. So if I'm, you know, and they're, they're somewhat disproportionate, you really get more points per centimeter in the, uh, 
jumps than you do in, 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 you know, in the throws and that. So you have to look at what you have and then you just, you prioritize your training. So at various phases of the training, it might be weak event or a various day, it might be weak event emphasis. Well, if, and that's what I've taken because I didn't do decathlon in college. I did it after college to learn how to be a better coach. And that's had a, that's had a huge influence on my coaching today. So for example, the really good woman that we have here is one of the best in the world. In the 400 IM, so you have fly, um, backstroke, uh, breaststroke, and then freestyle. Well, she's not equally good in each and they have different technical demands and different. So, you know, at certain times, Brent, the head coach, it's more um, one, emphasis, one, one drill is emphasized more than another. We've, we've done certain phases in, um, in her dryland strength training to enable her to improve her butterfly. We've emphasized certain things uh, almost to the exclusion of others, you know? So I guess it's, a, it's two things. It's, 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 it's a constant compromise and, and, and constantly monitoring your athletes. So you see how they're progressing both in training and in, 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 in competition. And then, and recognize that, that um, there it's, it's that it's just, it's just, this is kind of give and take, you know, that, um, that sometimes you, sometimes you, uh, you, you have to, you, you can't get it all done, you know, and, um, and that's, you know, that's why the perfect race has never been run the perfect, perfect game has never been played. That's what, that's what's so exciting. You asked at the beginning, that's what's so exciting about doing what we're doing. We're, we're, we're seeking perfection with this existential understanding that we're never really going to achieve it. It's going to be the best. You can break the world record and think about three different things you could have done differently, you know, and uh, I've, I've seen that happen, you know, so uh, it's cool. I mean, it's, and, and I mean, you, some people find that really depressing and I find that, you know, it's very, very challenging in a positive manner. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember, I'm sure Roger Federer has a, a similar quote about why he loves tennis and saying he wants to play the perfect game, but he knows it will never happen or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, on the track and field side of things, uh, something I also want to talk about is uh, I'm sure there's psychologists with a better term for this, but I guess psychological uh, robustness. Um, So I heard you speak on another podcast where you spoke about taking, um, sprinters or track and field athletes uh to a different track a couple of a few weeks before the meet yeah um just yeah. to switch them on a little bit um do you want to talk about how you came to this line of thought <laughs> well yeah that was a long time ago and it, it, it and it became it became a tradition too that when we got down to our last three competitions and in california high school athletes California state meet is equivalent of, well, you know, not to put down England or something like that, but England certainly stronger than England school championships. Uh, you know, you have the top 27 kids in each event in California and uh, Jeff Gowan, the late Jeff Gowan was an English athletics coach. And then later head of sport Canada used to used to have a great statement that, um, uh, 90% of the U.S. Olympic team uh, comes from California, and uh, the other the other 10% are 
or left home in California or something, something to that effect. So you get the idea. But no, the idea is, is when you get down and, and, and the, the, the peaking tapering phase, that's when the art of coaching really takes over. You're taking advantage of your work. And I've made as many mistakes as anybody. I've lost national championships by doing too much. Took me a long time to learn that at that time, if in doubt, do one less run, one less rep, one less lift or whatever it is. But, but you, 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 you give them, um, in this case, we went to a really, really good track, okay, where they were just by going on that track and there was world-class athletes out there, you know, so they, it perked them up. It gave them a different look because, you know, we're, we've trained all this time. So, and, and it, you know, you can do that in track. Um, I, you know, I, and I was the head coach. I mean, I, it's tough to do in a lot of other sports. I mean, we're not going to go to a different pool, um, you know, in that. Um, so, but it, it's, you can, you, you can maybe adapt it, you know, so. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I've spoken to friends of mine about the club that I used to box for. And when we transitioned into a newer gym and it was weird, you couldn't quite put your finger on it, but the hunger had kind of disappeared because all of a sudden we had loads of equipment and it was really fancy. Whereas yeah. our old gym, it was like, you had to run and get the nice gloves first. Um, but yeah, environment plays a huge role. Yeah, well, environment, that's a better way to put it. You Brilliant way you just said it. Environment plays a huge role. And, you know, you try to create an environment everywhere you go where champions are inevitable. If, if I brought 90% of the coaches that work dry land and swimming and they came where we were this morning. Now it was cold in Florida. You're going to laugh. I, I have to convert this to, to uh, centigrade, but it was 50 degrees this morning, 48 degrees. And, uh, you know, so everybody had sweatpants on and, uh, but normally it's not, but we, it's outside. All our, the dumbbells are outside. Everything's outside. So a couple of weeks ago, it was cold. I mean, it was, you know, and uh, yeah, that's just, that's our way. That's the shark's way, you know? And, and I always felt, I, I, I think, you know, uh, yeah, they have a air conditioned weight room that's, you know, so pristine and so perfect. I, it's okay. I mean, you know, but I, I, I like, I like, that's part of the robustness. That's part of the um, uh, creating a, a, a mental edge, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just changing tact a little. Um, I've heard you speak about this before, um, but over specialization and how people confuse transfer of training with specificity of training. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really a pet peeve of mine. Look, the specificity, you're a boxer, that means you box. Now there's more, but as you know, hitting a heavy bag is not the same as getting in the ring and sparring. Uh, you know, it, it looks like boxing, but uh, I mean, get, if, you, if you box against me, it'd be like hitting a heavy bag because I couldn't move <laughs> or something. Okay, so granted, but that isn't the case. You know, so the highest form of... Um, preparation for for cricket bowling is is to bowl okay or hitting is to hit and so that's where i've now more and more using the term appropriate now there's various overhead activities that i'll do with the medicine ball that are that are similar 
but they're not the same. I'm not trying to imitate the sport movement. I'm trying to prepare you for the sport movement, okay? I can't imitate butterfly stroke on dry land, but we know now, we just had that conversation, the coaches and I had that conversation this morning. We know now that we can appropriately strengthen this young man or young woman so that now they can go in the pool and they can do higher quality work and to a certain extent, higher volume work if necessary. And uh, now the optimum, uh, Todd, really the optimum for me is when you work with a coach where you're blending. Uh, John Pryor, who's a mate of mine, a uh, colleague of mine in Australia, and uh, he worked with Eddie Jones extensively with Japan Rugby and Centauri Rugby. And uh, they would go, they might have eight minutes of uh, speed development leading right into a, into a rugby drill, leading right into five minutes of scrimmaging. And I've been able to do that sometimes in various sports too. That's when you get the best transfer, I think, you know, but it's, it's a hell of a lot of work, you know, and a lot of coaches are not um, willing to do that for various reasons. I'm talking, you know, sport coaches, you, you have to have, you have to be marching in lockstep, you know, and it's uh, so, but I'm convinced that's the way to go. And I know I've been able to, to do that a couple of times myself in my career and, uh, and consult with some people that have done it. And the results are just tremendous, you know? So, uh, uh, and I think we're moving toward that. We're moving in that direction more and more. People are starting to understand that, you know, there's dark, you, the weight room can be a dark hole. You can go off and run in the forest and that can be a dark hole or, you know, all these places, you know, what, how do I, how do I get more ROI, return for investment, return on investment? Do you think, I'm just picturing what you're saying there. Do you think there's something psychological to be said in terms of buy-in about having this athletic development, strength conditioning, call it what you will, and the technical training occurring either simultaneously or in the same place? Yeah, no question. No question. And you can talk to the people that have done it. I mean, uh, I'm not as current what they're doing exactly with English rugby now, but I knew up until the World Cup, uh, one of my colleagues until about three months, but four months before the World Cup was a profile. I know what they did then. And I, I know when, and Eddie just, there was a podcast I was listening to with Eddie Jones um, the other day, and he talked about what they did with Japan rugby with John Pryor. Yeah. And so the, the degree of buy-in is just tremendous. You know, I mean, when, when, you know, I've seen, I've seen it in swimming. I've seen it in baseball. I've seen it in basketball, I've seen it in rugby. I've seen it in cricket, you know, and uh, you know, it, it can be done, but, um, and, and, and at the end of the day, um, you know, there's, there's good motor learning principles behind it. Good, good pedagogical principles and good, you know, good physiological principles in terms of, of adaptive responses. You know, so you're not dulling the stimulus, you're keeping the stimulus pretty sharp. And in terms of, uh, in terms of pedagogy, just a couple of questions before we wrap up. Um, so I've got down here that routine is part of uh, consistency. And I know you're obviously massive on doing the basics, doing the fundamentals. Um, is there any particular routines you have um, with your athletes? And my second part of the question is, how do you find the sweet spot between the consistency of routine 
um, while still keeping them psychologically excited to train. <laughs> well, when you, when you find that, tell me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding because, I mean, that's, you know, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, you come, you do mini band routine, you do walking rotations minimum every day or some, some, ver some small variation of those. So there's, there's what, what we do is, I'll just use swimming for example, but it'd be the same uh, if I were working with rugby or something like that. So we'd have an A and a B and a C warmup that's matched up to what's gonna happen in sport practice that day. And so, and, and those are touching on all the fundamental movements that you have to have. First of all, just fun, getting everything connected, toenails to fingernails, and then preparing you for what's going to happen in rugby or cricket or swimming or whatever. And it's a fairly narrow range of, uh, you know, we're, we're not trying to create a, a circus. So it's a very, fairly narrow range of what you do. And the danger that happens is it becomes mundane. And I like to have the consistency because Training is testing is testing and training. And so when they walk in the gate or they walk in the door or whatever it is, I, I'm really watching how they're doing the quality of movement of what they're doing on these movements. So that gives me feedback on yesterday's training, their readiness for today's training. Okay. Now that being said, for example, this morning, now, there's kids here that have been through this program. They started at 11 years old and they're 19. Wow. So th this morning we did a lot of the same movements and usually it's Saturdays six, or Saturdays and Mondays are our earliest Mondays are 530 in the morning. And so I'll lead it and I'll pick, um, I know what I want to do and I'll pick like six different movements that give me the feedback that prepare them for the, for the dry line strength training workout to follow, which is going to prepare them for the subsequent swim, you know, so that's how you, how you, um, uh, you know, ward off some of the boredom factor. I mean, uh, the, 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 the hardest, the, you know, you know, who gets bored the most is me. It's the coaches. Uh, you know, I said to one kid, I said, how many times do you think I've seen many band and walking rotation. I do it myself in my own training, you know? Uh, so, you know, we have to guard against that. But the great ones that I've seen across sports, and we're talking about Hall of Fame athletes, you know, Olympic medalists and that kind of stuff. They, 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 they're like clockwork. They just do the, they do the, uh, you know, the mundane for some reason that it, it doesn't bother them. And so as a teacher coach, we have to we have to inspire, motivate the athlete to understand that this is an important part of um, what they do. Yeah, and I think it's again it might be Dan John, it might be somebody else, um, but he's like, oh, are you, are you bored of winning medals? No, didn't think so. Okay, right, let's not get bored with the basics then. Well, yeah, uh, Emil Zadopek, Czech, great great runner. 48 and 52 Olympics. And um, one time, I think it's three weeks, I think he did three weeks every day, every day, 40 times 400. And so I, I, uh, I, I this was a tweet I put up, but I actually use this with an athlete. I said, um, how'd you like to get in the pool or in the, on the track and do 
40 times 400, three weeks in a row. And when, so when they come and they say, this is boring, that's what I, that's what I lay on them, you know? So when he stood on the top of the podium and the national anthem played, those 40 times 400, you know, made the difference. So uh, Kieran, Kieran Perkins, the Australian, great Australian distance swimmer, I've been told this, I don't, I can't verify that, but I've been told it enough people that I know it's true. Every Monday in his career, from the time he broke into the world-class level, and that was quite a long period of time, he did the same workout. Every Tuesday, he did the same workout, you know, on that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that as a coach. I couldn't do that as an athlete. But it worked for him, and he had the mentality that he could do it, you know. So, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, we have to we have to find ways, we have to find the keys, we have to find what works for each athlete, you know, and that's, a, that's the really fun part of coaching. That's, that's the art of it. And sometimes it's, um, sometimes it might even look a little crazy, you know, but that's what you do, you know, as long as it's legal and, and, um, you know, you, you, you figure out what you have to do, so. Absolutely. And uh, just in just in wrapping up, so I've only got four questions, four questions left. So the first one is uh, if you could have one key take home for the listeners of this podcast. So whether it's technical coaches, athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, teachers, uh, what would that take home be? Uh, ask better questions. Why, 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 why are you doing what you're doing? You should be able to come to my workout and ask me why I'm doing this. I can't give you a reason I shouldn't do it. Very nice, very nice. And uh, if you could, in, by all means, name different coaches, different fields, uh, but if you could observe one coach at the moment working with their athletes, uh, who would you like to observe and why? Wow. That's an interesting question because I've got about on my, um, when the pandemic if it ever ends or whatever, um, I, I've, I, I'm not a big, even though I played American football, I'm not a big fan of American football, but the, um, Nick Saban, the coach at Alabama kind of intrigued, football coach, American football coach at Alabama kind of intrigues me. Uh, that would be one person. Um, I wish he's still, he's still around, but he's not coaching uh, uh, day to day. Rick Charlesworth, who was the women's field hockey and then men's field hockey coach of Australia. Gosh, I'm, I'm going to insult somebody by not mentioning. I mean, I've got a list of, I, I mean, that's what I love to do. When I, when I go to Australia, my, my wife and the family never went. And I just sit out at the, sit out at the oval or something and just sit there and watch workouts by the hour, you know, just to see different coaches coach. I love to watch coaches coach. It's, it's, uh, uh, you know, so I got to spend um, seven days with Melbourne Storm last year and their head coach just, it was really cool, really, really cool watching, you know, so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if I've answered that no, quite appropriately. No, that's perfect. I mean, I, I, many, many guests uh, either struggle to limit to one or they're like, like I had somebody say, oh, can I say somebody who's passed away? I was like, yeah, sure. You take the question uh, whichever way you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, if you had one recommended resource for listeners, it could be a book, a podcast, an app, um, whatever. Well, again, books. I was thinking about this this morning when I was walking. I, I got to put out my revised list, and it's now 
huge. Uh, but uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to do something I never do. It's totally self-serving. Uh, go to thegainnetwork.com. Get involved in gain. Um, it's it's not about me. The G is Gambetta, but that's going away more and more. And it's an incredible network of professionals around the world uh, in physical education, sports medicine or athletic medicine, athletic development and coaching. And um, it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, human resources. And uh, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we haven't have, have been able to have our annual event now. We won't even this year, but but uh, look at the look at the website, look at the resources there. And I think you're going to get people see people that have skin in the game and uh, are not afraid to talk about successes and failures, you know, and that. So and that's that's not me usually to, to self-promote, but um, I'm going to. I think I, I the more I, I just came to the realization twice this week of how blessed I am to have the people in the network that I can email, Zoom with, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, Eddie Jones came to game and sat in the audience. Is that, I mean, how much, how much more of an endorsement do you, do, you know, do you have to have? I took notes, you know, and, and that. So, uh, uh, and, you know, we, I, I, Eddie's not, we're not bosom buddies. I mean, we know each other, but three weeks ago, I just, I got Eddie and uh, Ron Adams, who's a colleague, a little, one year younger than me, kind of the, the uh, elder statesman of NBA coaches with the, and with the Warriors. And we had an hour and a half Zoom call, you know, talking about coaching, you know, and uh, that wouldn't have happened without the gay network. Yeah. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with self-promote when you've got, well, the likes of yourself and Eddie Jones in there. <laughs> and uh, finally, how can people reach out to you if they've, uh, if they want to get in touch or want to see more of what you do? Yeah, um, we've, I, we've got to do a better job. Uh, I, I realized that um, there's a URL, gambetta.com, which is still active. And people email me there and I never get it because it goes to some account somewhere. Um, so my, my email is uh, G as in go, S as in Sam, T as in Tom, S as in Sam, coach at gmail.com. Um, gstscoach at gmail.com. Um, I'm on um, WhatsApp. Uh, people want to message me. Uh, you can just search for me and I'm on there. There's not, hopefully there's no other Vern Gambettas. You never know. Uh, and uh, and then uh, thegainnetwork.com and it's the G-A-I-N and then there's two ends. It's gain and then network.com. And, and you can keep up with what we're doing there. We do a, a Martin Bingeser, my colleague uh, in Switzerland. Um, we do a gamecast biweekly every other week. Um, we're sometimes we have guests, sometimes we just talk about stuff that we're interested in and that. So um, yeah, and um, and I'm on um, Twitter, right? At yeah, Twitter at I don't know at Coach Gambetta. I, yeah. Somebody asked me, I was just writing, I'm going to write a tweet about this, but I'll tell you it's uh, somebody said, well, how many followers do you have? What did I say? I don't know. And I, and I go, I don't know. And they asked me, well, why don't you know? And I said, I really don't care. And then they said, well, why do you tweet? Well, I get these <laughs> ideas. Um, I kind of like to share them and maybe somebody will give me some feedback. 
you know, and say, Vern, you're just full of it. Or, yeah, I never thought of that. Have you thought of this? So that's why I do it. I, I you know, and if, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have 20 followers or 20 million. I, I, my, my daughter put me on there. She said it would be good to help me promote game, but I, you know, she's in sports marketing, but anyway, it's a funny world we live in. Uh, I grew up without, um, you know, we had a party line for, for anybody over 70 where, you know, you shared a phone line with three other people, you know, so you could pick up the phone and listen to them talking and say, I need to use the phone. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to be live in the world we live in. So uh, anyway, so. I was going to say, that's all 50 plus years of coaching will do, eh? Yeah, it makes you a little dingy sometimes too, but it's a great ride. I, I hope I can keep it going. So uh, anyway. Well, as I said, Ben, I've learned tons from you, uh, from consuming your content through various different mediums. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, Todd. It's been a joy. Really good, good questions and good conversation. And best of luck in your professional development, your career, and best of luck in your, on your podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for listening to episode 45 of the Platform to Perform podcast with today's guest, Vern Gambetta, and myself, as always, Todd Davidson. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could leave me a review via your preferred podcast platform and share it with a coach, teacher or athlete that you feel would benefit from listening. If you'd like to go one better than that, you can sign up to my Patreon where in exchange for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive access to my ever-expanding movement library, exclusive strength and conditioning content that I've released only via my Patreon and access to all 30 of my calisthenics kids lessons designed to improve strength confidence and movement skill in children using age-appropriate bodyweight training. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you again in the next episode.